Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. It's the wheat. I'm Fabio Sinius, a reporter at Fox, sitting in this week for John Quillen Hill. Growing up, I was a student with the impeccable attendance record. I live one block away from my school, so getting there every day was super easy. School was a place I wanted to be, and I love seeing my friends and teachers. Plus, the perfect attendance certificate at the end of the year was pretty fun, too. But when I became a teacher years later, my outlook on attendance completely changed. My middle school students faced barriers that I never had to consider, like family obligations, disabilities, and chronic health conditions. It became clear to me that attendance records shouldn't be used as a way to label students as good or bad. Enter a global pandemic and an unprecedented youth mental health crisis, and the conversation about students missing school is unlike anything I've ever seen. American kids have now disappeared from school entirely. Chronic absenteeism. Absenteeism has skyrocketed across the country. Among American teens. Not all students have returned to the classroom. Education policy experts say we are in a crisis. Absenteeism has always been a problem, but the situation has gotten worse. The pandemic has induced a dramatic increase in absences. We're talking 14.7 million students who are chronically absent, up from 8 million students before the pandemic. Today on The Weeds, we dive into chronic absenteeism. We'll explore exactly what it means and why so many students are missing so much school. Students in schools aren't outright doomed. Some states are starting to see improvement. Connecticut is one of them. Attendance is at the heart of everything. That's Kari Sullivan-Custer. She's an education consultant for attendance and engagement at the Connecticut State Department of Education. Whether or not students feel like they belong in the community, whether or not they're learning in school, the connections they have with the teacher, but missing all that time from school has really impacted their tests, assessments, and such. And so it's more important than ever to be back at school. I asked Kari what Connecticut was experiencing prior to the pandemic. What we were seeing before the pandemic were high levels of chronic absence for students with high needs. Students with high needs is a group of students who have special education, who have IEPs, English learners, or free lunch students. And those students tend to have higher chronic absence. Connecticut's been publishing data for a number of years. We were one of the first states to have a statute with the definition of chronic absence. And also, chronic absence is one of our accountability measures. And so we watch our data closely, and we work with districts around where are your pockets of high levels of chronic absence. Is it a certain grade? Is it certain students? Is it a certain neighborhood because the students have to walk to school and there's been bad weather? Those are some of the things that we're seeing 
at the local level is really trying to identify what are the root causes and barriers to attendance. Can you talk about what's been driving these absences specifically since the pandemic began? Over the summer, Connecticut State Department of Education conducted a survey of families. And we got um, 5,400 families responded. And we were like, wow. And it was in English and Spanish. So we had responses from both. Some of the major like themes were illness and chronic illnesses, asthma, COVID, allergies, all that respiratory stuff that all hit at the same time as um, RSV, the flu, COVID. Parents really weren't clear about when to send their kids to school, and they opted to just keep them home in many cases. Some mental health and anxiety. Kids wanted a break to take a mental health day. You know, they felt overwhelmed. Kids had kind of gotten used to not having to go to school every day. And a lot of parents stay home for work, too. And so we kind of fell out of that um, habit and practice of get up, get ready, and go. And so just getting everybody to come back has been part of the challenge. So we know chronic absenteeism didn't start with the pandemic. Experts have been tracking it for more than a decade. I called one of them to learn more. Broadly defined, chronic absenteeism is missing so much school that a student is academically at risk. That's Hetty Chang. She's the founder and executive director of Attendance Works. We've helped to create a more common way of defining it, which is missing 10% or more of school. Over the course of an entire school year, that's about 18 days. But when it's one month of school, it's just two days, four days in the second month, six days in the third month. And what we want people to think about is to include all absences. It's not just excused absences or unexcused absences or suspensions. It's all three of those things. Because if a student isn't in the classroom to benefit from the learning or the engagement opportunities, then that can be a challenge. So how did you all land on 10% as being the, the best metric to define what chronic absenteeism is? This work started when Ralph Smith, then the senior vice president for the Annie Casey Foundation, asked me to figure out whether if kids missed too much school in the early grades, it made them less likely to read by the end of third grade. And as part of that work, we ended up trying to figure out, was there any data that could show that fact. And it turned out, actually, there wasn't much. Most people looked at truancy, which is only unexcused absences. Most people looked at average daily attendance. But we found one national database called the Early Childhood Longitudinal Study. And we could use data to look at how many days kids were missing. They tracked academic measures. And they had a cohort of kids. So you could follow them at that time from kindergarten to fifth grade. And so we partnered with Columbia University, who did an analysis of the data. And what they found was when kids missed 10% or more of the school year in kindergarten, it started predicting lower literacy in third and lower literacy in fifth grade. There is certainly some research that shows there's an impact of attendance even at lower levels of absenteeism, missing only 5% of the school year. But what you don't want to do is, if you will, cry wolf. If a kid just misses one day of school, that's not necessarily a big deal. So you don't want to have people having to overreact to one day of school. If you say 10%, it's two days, and at the end of the first two months, it's four days, that's really a pattern that people can look at. And we have since then also found research that this was done in um, 
Baltimore that found kids who missed 10% or more in the first month of school were more likely to be chronically absent for the remainder of the year. So what we were trying to hit upon was a measure that predicted academic challenge, but is also a common sense metric that people can use to notice early on when they can take action and prevent a child from becoming chronically absent for the entire school year. So I I think if we were to ask the average adult about absences, I think people would say it's obvious that missing instructional time puts children at a disadvantage academically. So what's different about chronic absenteeism? What more do we know about the effects of chronic absenteeism that should really make people be like, well, this is different than just, oh, they miss school, so they're they're a little bit behind on homework or, or coursework? Well, what I think is that people don't realize how easily absences can add up in just two days a month, and they're not always consecutive days. I mean, what we think about when we say, well, kids miss school, we think about the kid who missed a week of school or missed two weeks of school, and now I'm worried about him. What they're not always thinking about the kid who misses one day here and another day here, and then by the end of the year, you've added up to so much time lost in the classroom that you're actually academically at risk. And Because of the research that has happened over the last 15 years, we know that chronic absence starting in pre-K and K can actually predict lower readiness when you're in kindergarten, less likely to read proficiently or count proficiently by third grade, greater suspensions in middle school, lower achievement in middle school, and dropping out in high school. There's even some evidence that suggests that even if a kid somehow managed in high school to pass their classes even with being chronically absent, that chronic absence predicted being less likely to go on to post-secondary school and continue, you know, into college. That's fascinating. And I, I do want to bring up a uh, an example with a coworker of ours. We were talking on Slack at work and he saw, you know, some report about chronic absenteeism. He's like, they're just blowing this out of proportion. Like, and I was like, no, I've, I've seen the numbers. This seems like something to be concerned about. And then he kind of gave his personal example. He's like, yeah, my, my daughter, his daughter is maybe in second grade. And he was like, she's gotten sick with like, you know, some kind of hand and mouth. And he was like, she, she's already labeled chronically absent. So it felt personal for him. And it, it felt like chronic absence was like a, a negative label that he was sad to, to see. But he was like, my daughter was sick. So I think there's a couple things, and you're speaking to what I think I most don't want. I don't want this to be a negative label. I want it to be a sign that someone needs to outreach and check with the family to see if everything's okay and to see if they need additional support. On one hand, I do think, you know, kids get sick and they can miss a lot of school, but usually that doesn't continue over the course of an entire school year. But if we could use it for positive outreach, So it's not to label a kid. Let's say you missed five days uh, in the month of September. Doesn't mean you can't come back from that. But I think it's worth someone reaching out to the family and saying, hey, everything okay? Do you need any support? And then helping make sure that the kid misses as few days as possible for the remainder of the year. That's how this should be used. The other thing I do want to say that that's very challenging about this is that, and we've seen huge numbers in terms of the increase. So chronic absence went from about 16% of kids in the country to almost 30%. But it's not just the 30% of kids who are chronically absent that can be affected by chronic absence. When you have high levels of chronic absence, let's say 20% or more of kids in a school, 
that means at least 20% of the kids in that school are missing at least two days a month, okay? It's not like they all are gone the same days. They're gone different days. So a teacher may have a kid gone almost every day of the week, and then they're faced with challenges. Do I repeat the class for everyone who is there? Do I ask other kids to help out, but then they miss out on moving forward? I mean, it just makes teaching and learning much more challenging. And before the pandemic, about 25% of all kids in the country were in a school with 20% or more levels of chronic absence. Since the pandemic, that has shifted to 66, almost 66% of all kids. Two-thirds of all kids in a school where you have a level of chronic absence that it's affecting the learning. And also, it makes it harder for teachers to teach. It's caused by lots of factors, but we have to reestablish a routine of showing up to school every day so that our teachers can teach and all the students in a school can learn. And that means both addressing those barriers, transportation, unstable housing, unsafe paths, you know, those things get, make it difficult getting ill, but we can actually prevent illness-related absences, you know, as well as making sure that if kids aren't showing up to school, it's not because they're feeling unwelcome and disengaged, because that can also very much contribute to kids um, not showing up regularly to school. So we've gotten a sense of the scale of chronic absenteeism. Next, we'll get into how it affects students of all demographic backgrounds, from the cities to the suburbs and explore the barriers keeping them from the classroom. And we're back. It's the weeds. I'm Fabiola Sinius, sitting in this week for John Cullen Hill. Hetty Chang says we're in a chronic absenteeism crisis, that it was wrong to assume everything would go back to normal once schools reopened. I think a lot of people thought that once we reopened schools, things would just go back to normal. We reopened schools and you're seeing these extraordinary levels of chronic absence in 21, 22. The data from 22, 23 suggests that we're fooling ourselves if we think it's just gonna automatically get back to normal. We actually need intentional strategies of re-engagement and support for kids and families. You really have to have an intentional strategy to get a handle on this situation. Because once you have 20% or more of your kids chronically absent, you can't just say, oh, we'll have a social worker and she'll figure it out or he'll figure it out. You actually have to have a whole school approach to how you're going to support those students and how you're going to have every teacher, every staff member part of re-engaging students and helping make sure that if They can notice when the kids are gone. They can find out what are the barriers and helping to make sure that kids and families get connected to the resources they need. So let's get into uh, some of those numbers and some of that picture that you're painting for us. What are some of the most striking data points about chronic absenteeism right now? And I guess especially since the pandemic. The biggest, most striking finding that we saw was realizing that a majority of students 66.5% versus 25% before the pandemic attend a school in which 20% or more of their students are chronically absent. That's just a huge increase. 
It's also true that the majority of schools now have 20% or more, which really means they have to have a, a plan in order to figure out how they're going to tackle the issue. We've always had kind of higher levels in middle and high school, and they still have been heavily affected by chronic absence. But the largest increase is really happening among our elementary schools. Before the pandemic, we had about 3,550 schools with extreme levels of chronic absence, meaning 30% or more of their kids. Now it's close to 20,000 elementary schools with 30% or more levels of chronic absence. These very high levels of chronic absence are especially concentrated in places that are economically challenged. So if you look at schools for whom 75% of their students are free and reduced price lunch, about 69% of those schools have extreme levels of chronic absence. Whereas again, that was only about a quarter of all those schools before the pandemic. So it's widening inequities because when you have those high levels, again, it's not just the kids who are chronically absent affected. Now the churn is affecting the learning experience, the teaching experience of everyone in that school. And what about race? Like, are all kinds of students affected by chronic absenteeism? Yes, everyone is affected. And actually, if you looked at it by the composition of numbers, you'll see that there are still more white kids who are chronically absent than any other group. But we also have a lot of white kids in this country. Yes, yes. Um, Then Latino kids and African-Americans, those three groups make up the largest numbers of kids who are chronically absent. But it's important to look at both composition and disproportionality. So who's disproportionately affected? And that actually is a different question. So when you look at who's disproportionately affected, what you see is that Native American, Pacific Islander, as well as Latino and African-American kids are disproportionately affected. But these small groups like Pacific Islander and Native American, they don't make up across the country that many kids. But this is where it's really important for each community to look at their numbers. You need to know about which kids are chronically absent because it helps you understand where you need to engage in your outreach. What does it mean to be culturally and linguistically competent in doing that outreach? Uh, Who are the community partners who might be able to help you reach different groups? And so knowing both who makes up the largest numbers and who's disproportionately affected helps you think about how to better target and tailor your efforts to reach out. So this is really important data to think about and look at. And do you have anything to say specifically about English learners being disproportionately affected, uh, students with disabilities as well? And also, what about where kids live, if they live in city centers or more rural areas of the country? Certainly, students with disabilities are disproportionately chronically absent, so that's a challenge. We also know some of that's connected to health issues, but you really are going to have to unpack it and know more about the kids with disabilities in order to understand what might be some of the causes. The thing that's also challenging is what's happening with our English language learners. About 36% of English language learners are now chronically absent, but one of the things that we saw during the pandemic was a real shift among young English language learners. In California, for example, it used to be that young English language learners, let's say kindergartners who were English language learners, were actually not really more likely than English peers to be chronically absent. And in some communities, they actually showed up more often. 
that is no longer the case. Something happened between the relationship between English learner families and schools. And I think it also connects to who got so heavily affected by the pandemic. They were essential workers. They often lost a family member. Um, illness was a pretty significant challenge. Um, and then part of what you had to do during the pandemic was keep relationships of trust with families and really communicate about what's happening so families knew when school was happening, how school was keeping itself safe. You know, all those connections were really important. And I think we weren't so good about doing that with English language learner families. And that disengagement that then resulted is continuing to uh, be a challenge for us. It sounds like a lot of our understanding of what chronic absenteeism is stems from data. Can you talk about the data that we have around chronic absenteeism? Is it reliable? And what kind of challenges do we face with the state of the data right now? Well, I think data gives us a sense of the scale and scope. And there are some challenges in that. So, for example, if you look at the data on chronic absence, you can see that it looked like it got better in a lot of places in the 2021 school year. And that's because we actually didn't really know how to take attendance during virtual learning. And so we tended to count kids, or not that we didn't know how to take it, it's that we didn't have agreements about consistent ways. And we actually didn't want to penalize kids for not being able to get to school because sometimes under our truancy perspectives, you know, if kids don't show up, then you might end up having some legal consequences. So people in many places, made it easy for kids to show up being there. Show up for five minutes and you'll be considered there for the day. And even as we come back from the pandemic, I will say that not every state actually has a consistent definition of what's a day of attendance. Many states leave it still up to localities to define. And that means that then you can't compare data to see who's got good practice and who has challenging practice. So there are certainly lots of different data issues. I think the other thing is quantitative data doesn't tell us why kids are gone or missing too much. That's where you really have to explore qualitative sources, whether that's focus groups, empathy interviews. You can do things that are like two by tens where you talk to a kid over a period of 10 days for two minutes to find out what's going on with them. You can use surveys. You can do parent cafes. We actually need to use a whole host of qualitative means why are so many more students missing class? I understand that at Attendance Works, you have all worked on five buckets or categories to explain why students are missing school. We talk about sort of, as you said, these buckets of reasons. And these were before the pandemic, but there are certain issues that got exacerbated during the pandemic. So we talk about kids miss school because of barriers, aversion, disengagement, and misconceptions. So barriers, that can be trauma, poor transportation, you know, lack of access to technology if you're in an online situation, aversion because you're anxious or your disciplinary practices are pushing out of school, disengagement, you know, the lack of meaningful relationships to staff or to peers. We've actually heard a lot among high school kids that sometimes kids are more engaged in the work setting where they're getting paid maybe, uh, you know, a minimum wage of $15, $16 in there. At the meantime, they're not feeling so confident about how well they're doing in school. And so 
we don't have a school that's an engaging place where the kids want to be. And then there's issues of misconceptions where families don't recognize the critical importance of showing up every day for learning. But right now, we also have a huge challenge, which is that um, uh, a lot of families um, don't know when to keep their kids home once there's my kid has the sniffles. Do they stay home? Do I send them to school? It's not that there aren't times where kids should stay home from school. There are times. We just have to be very careful about knowing when that is. When you really see these high, high levels of chronic absence, it's a reflection that the positive conditions of learning that we know are so essential to motivating kids to show up to school have been eroded. It's a sign that kids aren't feeling physically and emotionally healthy and safe or that belonging, connection, and support, or the academic challenge and engagement, or that we've been able to invest in students uh, and adult well-being and emotional competence so they can build those relationships that are so crucial to positive conditions for learning. And which of these categories or root causes would you say were most exacerbated by the pandemic? I think we have two big challenges. One is around engagement. Do we feel connected Do we feel supported? Do we know people? Do we have those relationships? When people have relationships and strong relationships, they are much more likely to show up. And every place that I've seen that sort of has done a better job of preventing absenteeism from getting even worse is because they found ways to really sustain and build strong relationships between both students and also with families. At the same time, I think we really need to understand the physical um, and emotional health issues going on for kids in schools and really address that. How do we help kids get access to health services they need? Certainly there is a level of anxiety and mental health. And one of the challenges is sometimes people don't realize that when kids have anxiety, they end up having stomach aches. If you have a stomach ache and you keep them home, that actually may prevent a child from getting into the routine of school which actually is one of the things that will help relieve their anxiety. And so we really have to do a much deeper investment in that physical and emotional health and safety in schools. Up next, how school leaders are stepping up to address chronic absences. This week on The Pitch, we're breaking form and introducing a new segment on our show, called The Exit. You had your first exit at 18 years old, your second at 24. And then six months later, you start another company. This one's called Shipped. The company just exploded overnight. And then you realize, all right, we need more money. So you went out to Sand Hill Road. I'm not a West Coast type. I didn't have a feel for the game, but I figured it out really fast. What did you think when you threw out the number? It is very easy to get distracted and excited and thinking about what you're going to do with your millions. I ran the company out of money. I know my CFO and everybody was thinking, this is nuts. Oh, shipped. (laughs) Do you have any regrets about shipped? How Bill Smith, a high school dropout from Birmingham, Alabama, started, scaled, and sold his startup for $550 million dollars in three years. That's this week. Go right now and subscribe to The Pitch wherever you listen to podcasts.
It's the Weeds. I'm Fabiola Sinius, sitting in this week for John Gwilin Hill. Hetty says that solving chronic absence doesn't have to be complicated. I'm not so sure this is about innovation as it is about taking common sense ideas and making sure that we do them well. So in our last blog that we talked about in November, we talked about four things that schools can be doing. One is family engagement, connecting with families, making sure they know what's going on, making sure they feel comfortable at school. Another is school connectedness. And school connectedness is making sure that every child feels connected to an adult who they think cares about them, that students are connected to peers, that students are engaged in meaningful activities, um, and that students feel welcome at school. When kids are more connected, they're much more likely to show up to school. And then there's addressing these health issues, both making sure that kids engage in prevention-related activities, you know, whether it's the washing of the hands or getting access to dental care and vision care and making sure that you're staying healthy or also having access to resources so you know when to stay home and when to show up to school if you have a sign of illness. Then the last thing I would say is community partnerships and community schools, because this issue, this work is beyond um, what just schools alone can do. We have to have all hands on deck with everyone in a community, partnering to both build that culture of attendance or rebuild that culture of attendance, as well as provide the resources that can address common barriers that kids might face to getting to school. Back in Connecticut, Kari Sullivan-Custer has been pounding the pavement. The state has been celebrated for its home visiting efforts through LEAP, the Learner Engagement and Attendance Program. When we looked at the fall data and we realized that kids were not coming back to school and that they were falling behind in their learning, we knew we had to do something. And we were just a year into the the pandemic. Families were isolated. Families in our urban areas and other places were doubled up. And there were a lot of people in the house, a lot of people getting sick or or unfortunately passing away from COVID. People were scared. And we wanted to re-engage families with the school and to find out what's happening with them. It came through our commissioner and the governor's office that we should put boots on the ground to go out and reach out to these families to say, hey, how are you? How can we help? Attendance Works um, was a big help in developing this. It's a multi-visit relational home visit program. So you don't just get a one visit and they come in and say, you need to go to school and you're absent. You get multiple visits where the first one, we don't talk about attendance or grades or behaviors. We talk about what's going on? How's your family? What are your dreams for your child? And then you also get a picture of what else is happening in the house because there's siblings. And are the siblings having attendance issues as well? And we have the home visitors collect that data. They file home visit reports. And then we can see from that data what's happening with our families. We provided, it's called LEAP 101 training. So all the home visitors got trained on how to to do these home visits, how to connect with families through the first phone call. They're never a knock on the door, just show up. It's always scheduled. And families always have the right to say, we don't want a home visit, so it's voluntary. The home visitors are either community members, because we knew at the time teachers were overwhelmed. They still are, we still have staffing issues. And so we've brought in community members to do home visits and work with the school and train them as well. Can you comment on what you learned uh, from the home visits? Maybe something that surprised you about chronic absenteeism that you couldn't necessarily capture just from a phone call. 
I think it was how much help families needed and how much they appreciated the support and the relationships that developed between the home visitors and the families was tremendous. And we had families who made chicken soup for their home visitor and brought it to her house because she had gotten COVID. And we have home visitors who have helped families with older children fill out FAFSA forms, which is not an easy thing to do. We have home visitors who speak the language of the families. And so we want to make sure that families have someone to connect with in addition to the teachers. And as part of the plan for LEAP, the Learner Engagement Attendance Program, we had an an outside evaluation with the University of Connecticut and Central Connecticut State University and UConn. It's through our Connecticut Collaborative for Research with Higher Ed. And what they found is that the home visits had an impact, no doubt about it, for all families. But what surprised me about it is sort of the qualitative portion of the evaluation because the parents and the home visitors reported improved school family relationships, increased student engagement, um, better achievement, increased feelings of belonging, these sort of soft things that we that we know we need to have in schools to improve student attendance and desire to come to school. There was improved access to resources and greater gratitude and accountability, appreciative for the school and for each other. Because the, the home visitors learn more about the families, families learn more about what's going on with the schools. That was wonderful. That really speaks to that tier one climate and culture in a school where we want to have relationships. Can you talk a little bit more about the home visit program in relation to high needs, chronically absent students? For example, how do you address issues, big issues like health housing, juvenile justice, how does that fit into the framework of of LEAP? That's a really good question because those are the things that we see as barriers a lot of time. And it comes from our partnerships and integrating services into schools. We've increased school-based health centers in our schools, which we've added mental health services in schools so kids don't have to miss school to get those services. Students can, um, who may have an ish- a health issue can just go to the school-based health center and then go right back to class. We work closely with our housing partners and um, trying to do a lot of outreach and education around homelessness and the services and supports for families and and children around education. Many of the schools have pantries or closets for um, to help families with clothing and putting washing machines in schools because kids are saying they're not coming to school because they don't have clean clothes. When you're talking about those social issues, Schools can't do it alone, and they can't do it all, but they certainly can be a connector. And that's where LEAP is a connector to community partners with our families and our schools. We are even training LEAP home visitors in the mental health first aid so that they can recognize signs of families who might need help when they're doing their visits. It feels like there are so many crises in education right now, whether it's books being banned or teacher shortage. How do we get people to not bury their heads in the sand when it comes to chronic absenteeism and ignore this issue altogether? Celebrations. I think by identifying who's doing well, celebrating those students who have improved attendance at the district level, celebrating those schools that are seeing a difference in attendance and highlighting what their successes are, 
super excited about Connecticut improving their attendance and some of our districts have done a great job and just seeing that it can be done. It's not hopeless. There is definitely, we definitely have the ability to turn this around and to get back down to where we were pre-pandemic. Might take a little while, but I think uh, we're just gonna keep right at it and being positive and focus on the successes. Connecticut is just one of the states leading the fight against chronic absenteeism. But to make a real difference, more states will need to step up. That's all for us today. Thank you to Kari Sullivan-Custer and Hetty Chang for joining me. Our producer is Sophie Lalonde. Erica Wong engineered this episode. Colleen Barrett fact-checked it. Our editorial director is A.M. Hall. And I'm your guest host for today, Fabio Licinius. This podcast is part of Vox, which doesn't have a paywall. Help us keep it free by going to vox.com slash give.